So our computer guy, Adam, was uh, reading around and found a reference to this uh, chapter in a book by Robin Collingwood. We've talked about Collingwood a few times on the show before. Uh, we might have talked about his books, um, maybe um, Idea of History, but defi definitely Speculamentus. Um, this was in reference to a, uh, an interview with uh, Jordan Peterson and um, Stephen Hicks. Is that his name? Yeah. Yeah, um, the guy that wrote the Understanding Postmodernism. We actually interviewed him on the Truth Perspective a couple of years ago, I think. Um, so he had this chapter. Um, a reader had sent it into him, so he posted it on his website. The, pro the, the chapter is called The Propaganda of Irrationalism, and it's in a book he wrote in 1939, I believe published in 1940, called the, uh, An Essay on Metaphysics. And so it's a book on metaphysics, what is metaphysics, um, and and so in this middle section, he gets into some um, some ideas that were like some ideas and trends in thought that were going on in the time he was writing. So you know, 1930s and uh, the time leading up to that, they were kind of anti-metaphysics. And so that's why he's got this uh, chapter, the propaganda of irrationalism. He's specifically writing this um, in reference to psychology of his time, and. But as we'll see as we kind of go through what he talks about, the the implications and kind of like the ramifications of what he's writing are much wider than, I think, just psychology. He describes basically a um, a trend and, a, like a, well, something that he saw as a very negative trend in, like, the history of thought, which is, you know, primarily what uh, Collingwood was interested in. And kind of a tragedy of thought as well, because he saw basically this triumph of irrationalism in the academic world and saw that as um, kind of a, like a portent of doom for the, the future of humanity, because um, Collingwood being a philosopher himself, um, he, he's very, um, very insistent on the importance of philosophy the importance of like clear thought, of systematic thinking, and what that means and what that does for society as a whole, and the progression of society, and essentially what you know what the future will bring. So he, this book, um, it seems to me, was really a, a warning for what was happening at the time because he basically says, um, "Let me just read the the first paragraph or so." He says, "Let us imagine, or let us suppose, a civilization." whose most characteristic features had for many centuries been based upon the predominance among those who shared it of the belief that truth was the most important thing in the world and that consequently scientific thinking, systematic, orderly thinking, theoretical and practical alike, pursued with all the energy at his command and with all the skill and care at his disposal, was the most valuable thing a man could do. In such a civilization, every feature would be marked with some peculiar characteristic, derived from this prevailing habit of mind, and not to be expected in a civilization differently based. So he gives some examples like in religion and politics and um, economics, society, of what that would look like, you know, having truth as the ideal, and um, having all of these institutions and like, uh, you know, just things that people do um, organized around that idea, that idea of systematic thought that, uh, you know, Policies like public policies, government policies should be uh, should have good reasons. They should be um, they should be coherent. There should there should be a reason. There should be a goal, 
and um, and that would apply to to all of these things. So he, so after giving that kind of vision of the the ideal society that a lot of his readers would would suppose or would would assume is the society that they're living in. The, the description he basically Collingwood is saying, oh look at how great that this uh, this idea of society is, and a lot of readers would say, oh yes, that is well they're British. Oh yes, that is our society, but. He's, but then he says, now let us suppose that such a civilization had been in existence for a long time, uh, during which the application of its fundamental principles had reached a somewhat elaborate development. Suppose, for example, that the rationalization of economic life had reached such a point that its population could not be kept alive at all, or protected from starvation and disease, let alone kept in the degree of comfort to which they had become accustomed, except by the ceaseless exertions of innumerable scientists. And suppose that now within this same civilization, a, move, a movement grew up hostile to these fundamental pr principles. I will not speak of a conspiracy to, dry, to destroy civilization, not because I shrink from a notion so reminiscent of a detective novel, but because what I am thinking of is something less conscious, less deliberate, less dependent upon the sinister activities of any mere gang than a conspiracy. Something more like an epidemic d disease, a kind of epidemic withering of belief in the importance of truth and in the obligation to think and act in a systematic and, metho and methodical way. Such an irrationalist epidemic infecting religion would turn it from a worship of truth to a worship of emotion and a cultivation of, a certain, of certain emotional states. Then he goes on saying the same things about education, um, basically instilling uh, this unscientific thinking and um, like a contempt for ideas and um, uh, and scientific well and kind of like the, this scientific way of approaching um, of thought and ideas in general and then in politics you know a focus on the the immediate emotional thinking as opposed to a reasoned um, policy making and um, leaders who focus on simply personifying the mass emotions of society. And he, well, he's writing this in 1939, so I think he might have even been—he could have been referencing Hitler here, because that's exactly what Hitler did. Um, not just Hitler, um, but he, Hitler was essentially personifying the mass emotions, and that's that's one of the things that Jordan Peterson points out about Hitler: is it like it wasn't necessarily Hitler leading the crowd. Hitler would pick up on what the crowd was um, um, was going along with, and then he'd amplify it. So that's essentially how Hitler gained so much uh, like popularity was by feeding feeding into and feeding off of the, the emotion um, of the crowd. And um, same thing, like society, the personal communications. And that leaves kind of two, two modes of, of interacting with, with uh, well, just with life, with people and with society. And that would be like um, um, being persuaded by emotions. And what's the opposite side of that is terror. It's both, they're both emotional means of influence and of... Um, um, like pursuing goals. What, what do you have? You have either to be in like emotional resonance with someone or to emotionally terrorize um, another person. That's like, that's basically what it comes down to. But we have these, these modes of irrationalism infecting all of these areas. Now, <clears throat> um, so maybe one last quote before we kind of uh, discuss some of this and get into some other things. Um, next, let us suppose that the tissues of the civilization invaded by this irrationalist disease are to a considerable extent resisting it. The result will be that the infection can progress only by concealing its true character behind a mask of conformity to the spirit of the civilization it is attacking. The success of the attack will be conditional on the victim's suspicions not being aroused. 
Thus, in educational ex uh, institutions, an explicit proposal to abandon the practice of orderly and systematic thinking would only bring those who made it into disrepute and discredit them with the very persons they were trying to infect. But so long as nothing like a panic was created, liberties could be taken that would quickly have proved fatal among persons whose faith in scientific thought had not already been weakened. Let a sufficient number of men whose intellectual respectability is vouched for by their academic position pay sufficient lip service to the ideals of scientific method, and they will be allowed to teach by example whatever kind of anti-science they like, even if this involves a hardly disguised breach with all the accepted canons of scientific method. So then he goes on to basically say, uh, and well, imply and then say explicitly that this is the situation that you know, his society is actually in at that moment in the 1930s. And um, he does make the point that uh, things aren't so bad that they can get worse. And I think that's where the, this is I think what uh, the, the reader who sent this to Stephen Hicks was, had in mind, is that this seems to be what we're seeing nowadays, what we've seen particularly in the last like five years, but it's been going on for like the last 30. Well, and you can, like, no, depending on how you frame things, you can trace it back, you know, down back to the 1930s or even further back. But um, the, like, if we look at it in terms of the whole like rise of postmodern philosophy and uh, its influence on politics and its like widespread influence on the um, like the academic community and the universities, we can probably go back, I'd say, around thirty years to for where that really kind of gelled and took shape. And then in the last five years, it's been where it basically took off into the mainstream. And now it's like a, um, it's it's something that affects everyone to the point where we see the effects in in people's everyday lives in the uh, like just in the examples of like social media, like YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, or um, or in academic life and student life, in the kind of call out culture and. Um, the deplatforming of of you know certain political voices, and it seems to have um, reached the point where the the like the the consequences have have now reached down into like everyday people to the to the point where you've got you know some random guy in the UK who just like you know will post retweet something on on Twitter and then he's getting a visit from the police because someone has called him out for for hate speech when. It's arguably arguable with that, that what he had posted was even hate speech in the first place. So that's the kind of place we're in. And Collingwood is seemingly writing, um, well, he's writing something that is a very good description of what we're seeing. So maybe we can get into what exactly he was saying and how these connections are made. So maybe, um, I don't know, I'll throw a question out there. Maybe either of you can either pick up on it or go on, you know, start with something completely different. But what was he actually um, like what prompted Collingwood to see this, and like what were what were his main concerns with uh, that kind of led to him, um, um, you know, making this kind of diagnosis? Uh, any thoughts on that, or do you, you guys just want to go off in a completely different direction? Well, <clears throat> being a very rigorous thinker and philosopher, I could only imagine that he saw certain in, in his own uh, time and place uh, a sloppy thinking, a lot of uh, appeal to emotions. Um, and a lot of um, uh, social contagion that uh, that he saw. You know, he uses the word epidemic. Uh, he could he could see in his in his uh, time and place in his society how certain ideas got promulgated and shared and pushed through to such an extent that he 
he must have been scratching his head at the phenomenon and, and felt compelled to write about it. And uh, when reading this, um, this, uh, this section from, uh, from his book, I thought, my God, this is so relevant to, uh, to this time and place, to what we're seeing right now, to all the news we've been reading about, uh, to the examples that you cited, Harrison, that um, you know, it, it does us well to go back and to look at deep thinkers like Collingwood, who, who saw uh, and were able to see these perennial uh, developments in, in any society or culture, um, and specifically point to uh, the, the phenomena, the, the types of thinking that informed the disintegration of Western society. Uh, that there were a couple of news items that we had covered in the past year, uh, in particular, that I felt um, were stark examples of, of the type of um, of the type of thinking or, or non-thinking uh, and appeals to emotion that that Collingwood was getting at here. Uh, so uh, in the U.S., we have um, this kind of popularizer of science ideas named Bill Nye. Uh, he's he's called Bill Nye the Science Guy, who had a program on public television, I believe, for a number of years, um, and had a lot of popularity and and would explain, you know, he was kind of like a science 101 type guy who who would uh, make science accessible for a lot of people in the way that um, a guy named uh, Carl Sagan uh, would do. Well, except that uh, like Bill Nye was mostly for kids. Like I remember watching Bill Nye the Science Guy when I was, you know. You know, before going to like elementary school, so it, it was, he was basically like a, a popularizer of science for kids, yes. essentially. But now you have a whole generation of, of people who have, you know, grown up listening to the guy, uh, who might, you know, have only had him as that kind of trustworthy source of, of basic science, right? Because because he's the guy who who talks about the scientific method and is championing the uh, the the kind of um, excellence that that science uh, is capable of of uh, of using or explaining our world to us. Um, so in recent months, uh, he is uh, he has been this um, this kind of uh, proponent of um, climate change in in the and global warming, which for anyone who's been following this story closely. Uh, is a big con and is based on a lot of lies and has become this kind of um, this this ide- almost an ideological uh, uh, thought uh, and and contagion um, in our society, which is to say that you know we're supposed to now uh, all feel that the the climate is in terrible crisis because of global warming and and um, and what humans are doing to the earth. And there is something to be said, of course, about what, you know, how we're polluting the planet. Uh, but these folks take it in a, in a completely different direction, I think. So um, one story that demonstrates how this, this kind of um, thought leader, to the extent that Bill Nye is a thought leader in science, in popular culture, has been uh, negatively influencing people's thinking. Uh, he was recently on um, on the John Oliver show, 
which is a kind of, um, it's called Last Week Tonight with John Oliver, where Oliver gets into this kind of political satirical commentary, which is sometimes correct and quite often very wrong. Uh, Bill Nye gets on and he says, by the end of this century, if emissions keep rising, the average temperature on Earth could go up another four to eight degrees. And Bill Nye is kind of screaming this uh, on his little video segment on the show. And then he gets rather, uh, he gets even more emphatic. He says, quote, what I'm saying is the planet's on fucking fire. There are a lot of things we could do to put it out. Are any of them free? No, of course not. Nothing's free, you idiots. He went on to say, grow the fuck up. You're not children anymore. I didn't mind explaining photosynthesis to you when you were 12, but you're adults now. And this is an actual crisis. Got it? And then he does a little, uh, he, he kind of sets something on fire and says, safety glasses off, motherfuckers. So um, what, what, we're, what we're seeing here uh, in this, this uh, televised demonstration of climate anxiety that we're all supposed to feel is the very uh, irrationalism and appeal to emotions uh, that Collingwood is getting at right now. Um, and just to take things a, a couple of steps further, in particular with uh, Bill Nye, um, when he was interviewed on a more serious program, Tucker Carlson, uh, his news program on Fox, um, he basically, in, in this kind of uh, example of rigorous questioning that Tucker Carlson had uh, engaged Bill Nye in some months ago, Bill Nye demonstrated, as Scott Adams outlined in an article of his, uh, a, a cognitive dissonance. He couldn't, he couldn't incorporate the questions or he couldn't reconcile the questions, the reasonable thinking of Tucker Carlson in regards to climate change uh, in, into his own assertions. And, and Bill Nye sort of short-circuited live. So, um, so that's, what we're, that's what we're seeing here. We're, we're seeing these thought leaders uh, in science, in politics, um, who are short-circuiting, appealing to the emotions of their audience, um, and and basically basically being exemplars of this irrational thinking that they're demanding you take on in in your own thinking. <clears throat> yeah, that's uh, that's very true. And just go to, back to what you were saying, Harrison. The question that you asked about where. Collingwood traced this this development, and he writes in the in his book about how he traces it to basically the 18th century and the rise of materialistic uh, biology and the rise of psychology as a science of both feeling and thought. And I'm just going to read um, a couple quotes for, that he wrote in that chapter. He writes, "Just as the aim of materialistic biology was to wipe out the old biology with its guiding notion of, purp of purposive function, so the aim of what I will call materialistic epistemology was to wipe out the old sciences of thought, logic, and ethics with their criteriological methods and their guiding notions of truth and error, good and evil." Just as materialistic biology hoped to study organisms by substituting for the old biological methods the modern pro uh, methods of Newtonian physics, 
So materialistic epistemology hoped to study the processes of thought, theoretical, and practical by substituting for the old methods of logic and ethics the modern methods of psychology, the science of feeling. And he goes on to write, Psychology cannot be a science of thought because the methods it has developed in its history as a science of feeling preclude it from dealing with the problems of criteriology. It has nothing to say about truth and falsehood. If a science of feeling has nothing to say about truth and falsehood, nobody need worry. To, dis- to discuss these things is not its business. It is the business of the science of thought. But if a science of thought has nothing to say about truth and falsehood, the omission becomes important. It can only mean that according to this science, the distinction does not exist. And this is what psychology as the science of thought does, implicitly at any rate, teach that the distinction between truth and falsehood is part of that antiquated lumber which has at last, thanks to its own success in superseding a logical science of thought by a psychological, been thrown on the dust heap. So he really laments, I think, the collapse of logic as a rigorous science, a rigorous study of the various, you know, more or less concrete methods of thinking, you know, notions or criteria like the non-self-contradiction. Like you can't say that uh, one thing that immediately contradicts the other and then expect, you know, anybody to actually take you seriously. And he points out that a lot of the psychological theories that he was reading at the time, you know, whether it was uh, like behavioral type theories or Freudian, that they would do just that. In, in order to explain ways of thinking, they would propose, like, this set of neurons, when activated, you know, leads to a, a lesser, you know, activated state. And then, you know, one page later, say, the same set, when activated, leads to, uh, you know, the completely opposite result. And so he was pointing all these, these examples out and saying that he saw in, not just in psychology, but as, as I said, he traced it back further into the rise of materialism itself and materialistic biology and the attacks on Christian, you know, ideals. But he saw that this, this way of, of erasing these very fundamental presuppositions we have about reality, truth and error, good and evil, that by erasing them and then lumping everything that, you know, everything concerning thought, concerning truth, concerning emotion and sensations together into one package known as psychology made it so that you couldn't have an actual conversation about the mind because that wasn't what psychology was about. Then he goes, he, you know, he says he's not attacking psychology or psychologists at all. And he even says the people he's criticizing, he doesn't think are, are consciously guilty and are, you know, highly intelligent men in their field. But the problem is, is that just by default, as he said, psychology as a science has grown to study emotions and sensations and has produced numerous, you know, positive things. Like today, you think about all the psychologists and their popularity, and they're popular because we have so many issues. You know, Jordan Peterson, you know, Jonathan Haidt, and Adam, uh, our radio guy, and I were talking the other day about uh, all of these psychologists and how important they are. Uh, you know, he's pointing out there, you know, they're, they in and of themselves uh, provide a real service to people. But the profession, as it has grown since the, the decline of, you know, the sciences of ethics and logic, is not fit to, to deal with this. And so there's a gaping vacuum, basically, in our intellectual culture 
that was filled by that then came to be filled by more and more kind of snake oil salesmen like these postmodernists and you know all these individuals who who would say that you know man is just a machine there is no there are no uh, metaphysical presuppositions in nature there's nothing metaphysical about reality at all there's nothing there's no such thing as truth there's no such thing as error. There's no such thing as a reason to live. To even ask such questions is to commit just the the most naive sins, uh, because nothing nothing really matters. But however, Collingwood points out that this you know in this whole book, the whole essay that he writes is in order to combat this fallacy. He he points out that we do have these concrete absolute presuppositions that we have to act as if they're true in order to live. And all of these sciences and the scientists, they have to act as if there is such a thing as truth, as if there is such a thing as facts, because by nature of their very uh, field of study or just their way of being, that it precludes that. You have to have this absolute presupposition that there is such thing as truth in order to go out and seek it. And so, you know, this this is the realm he says where metaphysics is has a role to play in human life, even if it, it can't be empirically studied. It can still it still exists and needs to be taken as uh, as a factual, you know, way of or just a fact of life. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, I want to go back to what you said about his view on psychology and how he's he's not bashing psychologists per se. So he. At the end of the chapter, well, at the end of this chapter, he basically says that, and what he means by that is that um, he's fine with psychology as a science of feeling and sensation, as long as it's acknowledged that it is, right? But the but what the psychologists that he has a problem with her were doing, and I think this has carried over a lot today, is that they they were trying to supplant the science of like logic and ethics with psychology, with the science of feeling, and saying that the that psychology which is which is the science of feeling you know according to collingwood saying that that is the science of thought that that all that that's all there is to thought so basically they're trying to supplant like uh the traditional um sciences of logic and ethics with feeling and so by doing that and we'll get into the reasons why that happened i think by doing that, they they they've set themselves up as the kind of um, the standard for 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 truth and logic, but without the the actual acknowledgement of like the existence of truth or logic or a justification for why truth and logic should be like a reasonable standard by which to to do their science, which leaves it at this kind of self contradictory mess. So, I think what he's saying is that like basically in his time and in all times, what you have is that uh, there are a a set of presuppositions in that worldview that are maybe not absolute presuppositions, maybe not like totally like going into like philosophical metaphysics, but um, but there are assumptions within that that then filter down into the wider culture, and we we've seen that playing out. Like Elon brought out, you know, the the example, the the modern example of Bill Nye, and in the in the wider sphere of postmodernism, that's what we see. We see a set of like uh, philosophical assumptions and basically like propositions, statements that are left unsaid, but which will, will they're often left unsaid, but which permeate throughout the culture and then have an effect. And that would be like the there is the the, the postmodern suggestion at least, or the explicit um, proposition um, in in certain cases that there is no truth, which is uh, like uh, just 
complete nonsense. Because like we've said several times on the show, you know, whenever you say that there is no truth, you're assuming the truth of that statement. There's a, there's a presupposition in that statement that there is a standard of truth. And that's, that standard is guiding and like shaping your own statement. You say it because you believe it is true and you're essentially trying to persuade the people you're talking to that that statement is true. So you're trying to convince other people of the truth of the idea that there is no truth, which doesn't make any sense. And what you have from that is that when you when you supplant you know the when you supplant truth as the ideal of uh, like the ultimate the ultimate ideal and the ultimate like value of uh, society and everything that comes from that of well, of of um, just life in general so f- on all levels from the, from your individual life to society to all of the like endeavors that humans engage in when you supplant that idea of truth you're left with emotionalism you're left with irrationality as you know as collingwood calls it so that's when you have so even though you're totally contradicting yourself you're still you you're still able to get things done but you're doing them in such a way that goes against that ultimate value of truth you're now you're now um behaving in such a way and setting up your essentially your goals in life in whatever sphere of life you're acting whether it's like an academic position or in your job or in in your um, in, in your policy making or whatever, whatever sphere of life, you are now um, supplanting that ideal of truth and, and, and just leaving what, what feels right, <clears throat> what feels good. So that's where we, and that, and that's where we are today because of this, this progression. Like I said, you know, you can trace back the progression five years or 30 years or 100 years or 200 years or 300 years. Um, and b- because history is this one, is, is this flux of like information and the development of ideas, you can, you can find the precursors in all these periods. And so I think one of the things I want to do is to, to identify some of those in, in this show. But, um, but what you have as a, as a result of all that now is, are, well, are these ideas like the the need for safe spaces, the the total like the offense taken at offensive things to the point where it's now more important to shield yourself from um, someone saying that aff- someone saying something that offends you than it is to either listen to that uh, what that offensive thing and consider oh maybe that's true or to just listen to it and decide that it's false and then leave it at that mm-hmm. because you know like twenty years ago. Um, people were a lot better at being offended. You know, someone would say something offensive, and it was like uh, either you'd get in a uh, like a physical fight over it, or you'd just ignore them. Or you know, there would be there were more um, there were more methods of dealing with you know with an offensive person than um, than there are now. Nowadays, it's like you ha- you have you have the right and almost the duty to call out that person for being offensive and. Um, somehow coerce them into shutting up, um, and that is that is so like so counter to this idea of of truth as the most important thing. Because like uh, one of the things that uh, that uh, Collingwood says at the beginning of this chapter, when he's talking about like a society that is run by that ideal that uh, holds it as the highest ideal, he says, for example, in politics, politics would be predominantly the attempt to build up a common life by the methods of reason. And then in parentheses, he says, free discussion, public criticism, and subject to the sanction of reason. That is, the ultimate test being whether the common life aimed at is a reasonable one, fit for men who, no matter what differences divide them, agreed to think in an orderly way. So, 
reason and like the ideal of truth is what can unite people with vastly like disparate views who disagree with things on fundamental levels, but they all agree to 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 live and interact with each other in this in this reasonable you know worldview in this reasonable world where it's like well we disagree so let's let's use our reason to to come up to, to figure out why we disagree maybe we can compromise maybe we can't maybe we have like some fundamentally different reasons but we each have our reasons and we respect those reasons because we see how they are placed in the wider framework of um, like our our wider uh, culture our, our wider system of thought so uh, but with that said I want to I want to get into just some of the basic ideas um, before going forward, because we've talked about a few things like uh, like science and metaphysics and presuppositions, and so I want to just get some of that out of the way. So hopefully we can like get on the same page and know what we're talking about, and you know, so you know, you viewers and listeners can try to get on the same page, and so we're not just kind of like a you know speaking at cross purposes, but <clears throat> like for for uh for Collingwood he's got this like this is part of a book um like essay on metaphysics so he's talking about metaphysics and um and he's talking and so a, a part something another thing he's talking about is rationalism and the two will go hand in hand for for Collingwood so i don't have uh, a a quote from the book on how exactly he defines these so um i'm going to i, th- I think I, I i found at some point in the book he basically when he's talking about rationalism um He's defining rationalism as like the metaphysical analysis of the nature of things. So metaphysics comes from Aristotle. That's why you have the world, the word. And originally it was just like um, he wrote a section in his book on like physics, and then he had the section after physics, which was metaphysics. And this was about like the root, like first principles, or like what Collingwood would call like absolute presuppositions, or like the most general abstractions um, about the nature of things, the nature of reality. And so that came to be called metaphysics, um, like the thing above or beyond physics. Physics being, you know, what, what we can think of as physics too, the, 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 the description and like analysis and uh, like explication of the way that physical things interact. So today that is mostly a mathematical endeavor with, uh, you know, the mathematics of energy and motion and, uh, you know, quantum physics and all that stuff. Um, and so metaphysics would be like looking at the the the, the general um, the most general abstract conceptions and ideas and conditions that that have to do with um, you know everything. So um, that can be like uh, Corey was saying earlier, like the 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 absolute presuppositions, the things that you can't you can't help but presuppose in any analysis or any statement that you make, um, and. And well, so back to rationalism. Another part of rationalism, well, part of like the the, the root of the word is reason. So the reasons for things, not necessarily just a a, a description of the bare facts, but the reasons for things, uh, the reasons why um, you know things happen, or you know one thing is like this and not like the other, and then um, put together like a system of metaphysics will be like the overall pattern of these general conceptions. So I want to go back like 300 years or so and um, and give a, a little background. Now, Collingwood, I don't know if Collingwood does this because I haven't read the whole book. I've just kind of, uh, you know, flipped back and forth and then read this chapter. But um, a book that I think is really relevant 
along the same lines is Whitehead's uh, book called Science and the Modern World, where because he goes back and he traces like the history of ideas for for like the past three four hundred years, the rise of science and the and the like the the metaphysics or the lack of metaphysics of the scientific worldview. So before getting to that, one other word that Collingwood uses is the word science. So when he uses the word science, he he at one point explicitly says that when he's talking about science, he's using it in the most general sense possible as like, you know, any kind of like systematic ordered, um, well, any kind of like ordered system of thought. And so that would, that would apply to something like logic or ethics or, or anything. He's not, uh, but when most people think of science, they think of like what Collingwood would call natural science. It's like a branch of science. So what Whitehead is doing in his book, Science in the Modern World, he's looking at natural science. And he argues that the scientific worldview, the natural, you know, natural science, uh, what we now know as the scientific worldview, is itself irrational. It's an, an even anti-rational. The reason he says that is because, um, <laughs> yes, uh, like he'd agree with Collingwood that it's very ordered and systematized, and uh, it, you know, it's an all, it's a system where um, you know one part influences the other part, and they can't contradict each other. So that's how you have like the the you know the ordered system of that describes physics and the search for an ordered system, like the search to reconcile different like physical theories together. Um, like that's what Einstein was trying to do with you know, unified, unified field theory, like to try to take all these different theories that describe different uh, aspects of life, see how they, um, or nature, see how they relate to each other and then fit them together in a coherent whole. But the reason that science is anti-rational, Whitehead would say, is because um, he, he would say that a rational system, like a system of rationalism, were like the ancient Greeks. The ancient Greeks, like Aristotle, they developed like a system of metaphysics with, um, with these grand um, general abstractions and conceptions that themselves all fit together um, coherently in, 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 a, in a logical, um, like coherent um, whole or pattern. And that, that was, so that was like a full like metaphysical system that, uh, that Aristotle developed. Of course, it had his problems, and, and like, uh, so modern philosophers, of course, have, have certain problems with Aristotle, just like with every other philosopher. But then in like the Middle Ages, you had um, the, the kind of scholastic school of theology, like from Thomas Aquinas, and that too was, uh, that was based, you know, his philosophy was based on Aristotle. Um, and that itself also was like this coherent whole. But what happened when you had the, the scientific kind of revolution and all these new scientists come out is that they, they divorced themselves from that system of rationalism. And they, so they were, they were less focused on the, the, the abstract, um, like, uh, abstract logic and the, the system of concepts behind physics and more focused just on the physics, just on the, the uh, almost exclusively on the concrete examples of, of the things that they could study, the particulars, the, the, um, so they, they had like this hyper focus on, um, um, like physical, like events in the world that they studied and they, they tried to get to the bottom of. And the reason that Whitehead says that was irrational is because if you look at how science progressed, there was oftentimes no, um, no dialogue with the, the philosophy of the time. So along comes Hume, who gives this like airtight argument for why it's impossible to extrapolate from examples like particular examples of one thing happening to the other and then to extrapolate from that a law or a cause like a universal law that says that well that will always happen like one after the other that cause will always have this effect 
Hume argued that that was impossible to come by because all we had were our like um, our perceptions of that event, and from the perception, it doesn't follow that we can extrapolate anything beyond the the perception that one thing happened after another th after after you know another thing. In the future, it might happen that that uh, something else happened after that thing. There's he he couldn't um, he couldn't find any obvious reason for why there was something intrinsic between like a cause and effect. And so, scientists were just totally uninfluenced by that. Um, they, they, they didn't even respond to it. They just kept studying, you know, these these causes and effects. And but the so Whitehead said they they were basically guided by a, a supreme faith, and the faith was that uh, their faith was in these laws of the universe. But there was no reason why. Like there's no obvious reason why they should have that as a hypothesis that there should be this this overarching law, um, and they had no re so they had no reason for believing in these overarching laws and uh, and, and no um, and no justification for how that could happen aside from maybe um, like their theology if they were religious oh well it was just that's God's law that's it but the the faith was in this overarching um, law but without a philosophical justification for it. So that's why, like Whiteheads would argue that they were fundamentally irrational, is because they didn't have a philosophy to justify, to justify like the the most important things about you know what they were what they were arguing for. So like the like universal law of gravitation. Well, why is is gravity universal? Why did Newton like um, make this grand case for that for the idea that um, like gravity would apply the same everywhere and always? That doesn't follow from just observing that. Gravity applies in the like however many instances Newton observed gravity to to apply in that way. Um, it doesn't it doesn't follow from a, a series of particulars that there will be a general rule to to encompass all of those particular occasions on which this thing will happen. What that requires is a developed system of metaphysics, and so the science so. Um, like the the whole history of science is is a history like of anti metaphysics. This is why I, what I don't know if Collingwood gets into or not. I don't know how far he goes back, but um, so Collingwood is seeing the rise of of psychology, the science of psychology, as this uh, the science of feeling and how it's trying to supplant the like the science of of thought and logic and ethics. Um, you know how things are connected logically and what that implies for behavior, what that implies for action, but for the you know two three hundred years prior to Collingwood, prior to psychology, the like the the science the the natural scientists the 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 physicists and the like the biologists they they too were lacking this. Um, they, they may have they may have believed in truth, but they were lacking like a system of metaphysics in which to actually in which truth is actually possible. So for for hundreds of years, um, this has been like the 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 you know philosophical ocean in which humanity has been swimming at least you know in the like western philosophical tradition and where, and where the science you know where science uh, kind of took root and and took off is that we haven't had like a system of metaphysics to to justify even the existence of science so that's led to this kind of like this schizophrenia and this this inner conflict i think in the in the you know collective mind of humanity where we've had these um like these great technological breakthroughs and t great scientific break breakthroughs, but it's been like it's at it's been one step or more removed from 
the from the ideal of truth like there's like it's like the ideal of of truth has just been kind of like suspended over these uh, over these developments. It's been like you know we kind of make reference to it and 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 you know great minds have made reference to it, but they, there hasn't been like a a solid link to to bring it all together, and that that I think is what created the um, the like the, the soil in which what Collingwood is describing um, you know grew you so that's how that's how that's how psychology as a science of feeling was able to say of itself that it was the science of thought is because the science of thought had been so relegated to like uh, to the past and to theology that that there was no real um, no real reason to um, to to fall back on. Uh, well, well, not to fall back on, but to to appeal to metaphysics or to to to, to have this marriage of of philosophy and science. Uh, like s- science has been like very like sequestered from philosophy. So that's how you know s- psychology comes in and and now says, oh well, we're the science of thought, really, because the science of thought had been you know left to to um, you know decay or or just left to its own you know department in in the universities, and so. That so so we have back in the early 1900s this rise of irrationalism because of like a rise of irrationalism that had happened over the last hundreds of years. So now all of that has compounded today because since uh, since Collingwood's time, like metaphysics has no um, no greater position than it did then. In fact, probably a, a lesser position. Um, you don't often find. Um, like in in most of the books that I read on various topics, like there's no d- real discussion of philosophy. You have to read a philosophy book in order to get you know a discussion of philosophy, and not many people read philosophy. But like Collingwood says, it's like that's actually extremely important mm-hmm. um, for not only for science but for society itself to 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 make sure that we to make sure that we are thinking you know orderly and systematically, because that will have an effect. On everything else that we do, because we are influenced by uh, by philosophy, whether we like it or not, we either have an implicit philosophy that remains unexamined and um, unelaborated, or we can try to do that elaboration, try to make that philosophy explicit. Because by making it explicit, you'll find some things that are like absolute that you can't get around, and you'll find some presuppositions that you have, some assumptions that you're making that you fi- that you analyze and say, well, wait a second, you know that that actually doesn't make sense. That that's not true. You know, the way I've been, the philosophy I've been, I've been um, like living out in my life, hasn't been true. It hasn't been. It hasn't. It hasn't. Uh, it doesn't conform to my nature. It doesn't conform to the nature of of the the wider wor- the wider world, like in general. And maybe you know, I should maybe I should make some changes. When the when it, the philosophy is left implicit, all the errors that are implicit in that philosophy can then get expressed, and they get expressed. Uh, well, because because um, because intellectual kind of developments set, tend to filter from the top down. Um, everyone ends up being influenced in one way or another by the implicit assumptions that are made by the like intellectual leaders of the age, essentially. Mm-hmm. Oh, Harrison, that, I really liked what you said about how scientists could be considered anti-rational, because that just seems so counterintuitive. Mm-hmm. You think, you know, scientists are held up as the arch-rational beings, you know, in modern society, in the modern age. But it sounds like the reason they're not considered rational is because they lack a system of metaphysics. And if you lack a system of metaphysics, 
then you have no you have no real conscious appreciation of the of the qualities that are governing your life of of why you're doing what you're doing you're just doing it because like you said you just you have faith you just have faith that you have to you have to do this because right. implicit it, it, reasons. it's just implicit reasoning and but then that's not that that's not the fault of the scientists per se you know you'd think that that is the there's something else going on there uh, some philosophical gap that hasn't been filled like you pointed out like david hume you know he you know he advanced this powerful argument about why cause and effect can't exist you know when you know metaphysically that's actually one of the things that collingwood says is a, an absolute presupposition of science so you know what is philosophy doing if it's just attacking the absolute presuppositions and then just failing I mean, you can't, you know, can't blame anybody for not listening. You know, there's no reason for you to go to work today. You know, well, I have to go to work. That's just, you know, just something that I have to do. So I don't care if you tell me that it's, you know, or you can't go to work today. Or how do you know that you can go to work today? It's like, you know, all that, all those things, you're like, what, whatever, you're just wiseacring. So it sounds like there was an epidemic of wiseacring that, and that is one area where this, this epidemic of irrationalism really festered was in the philosophy departments in the West, especially with the counter-enlightenment, with all of the philosophers who said that, you know, there's no way that you can know that something exists for real, you know, that everything exists in your mind. They'll say it to one way, to one extent, to another. But there was a whole string of philosophers who argued such things, you know, from Immanuel Kant to, uh, you know, David Hume, uh, Hegel, you know, the Hegelian dialectic that basically enshrined, you know, self-contradiction into philosophy. Like, you know, rather than the principle of non-self-contradiction, he's like, everything is just contradiction. How about we, how about that'll be our new philosophy? So it's, you know, there's a lot of, uh, a, a lot going on in the philosophical arena that perhaps was left to their own devices because um, the mind had been relegated to, to just like that, that waste bin of history, you know, to paraphrase Collingwood. But there was just this general attitude change from the, the science, you know, from science as being the study, the rigorous and systematic study of just about anything to it being hyper-focused on a specific method in specifically materialistic terms. Mm -hmm. Whereas, you know, before, like you pointed out, you know, Aristotle had a very, a science of metaphysics as Collingwood would describe it, a science of, you know, you have a science of philosophy, a science of metaphysics, a science of, of logic, and all of these things have their own worth. And quite clearly, perhaps at this point in history, we can understand their worth by their lack you know, at, at some point you just, you, maybe you only really realize what you've got when it's gone. And, at, you know, what does he, he says, um, he says, if the people who share a civilization are no longer on the whole convinced that the form of life, which it tries to realize is worth realizing, nothing can save it. And that's just, you know, a form of life, a civilization is striving for. What civilizations don't strive for a form of life? That's so, you know, uh, that's just, that sounds like a meta narrative. Nobody likes a meta narrative. Everybody gets to do their own thing. Well, you know, maybe that's one of those absolute presuppositions of living in a civilization that you can't take for granted, that 
you have to you have to have a philosophy that has explicitly defined in a way that is understandable by as many people as possible what the goal is what you make you take what is implicit about the the goals of you know for free speech why do we have free speech why do we have a legal system why do we have equality before the law you know at least nominally and why do we have all of these checks and balances you know there is a there's a reason there's a value in that an absolute presupposition that we didn't come up with it's not something that comes with us like the you know our, the hair on our head or lack thereof haha <laughs> 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 But it's something that you have to make explicit for yourself. Otherwise, you're an irrational being. Mm-hmm. Is well, that, that true? That, uh, that's very interesting because uh, right now we, we do see a tension um, of uh, segments of society that are proponents of the Constitution, the rule of law, uh, that are, are pointing out all of the kind of um, political... Uh, uh, back and forths and and treachery that's being um, that's being committed by ignoring all of these very basic civilizational or at least in the U.S. Uh, basic tenets of of how we're supposed to function, and it's as though all of all of those ideas, all of those values, have been um, relegated to the waste bin among a whole a whole portion of uh, of society, where. Uh, you have a whole other segment of the population that that are trying to uphold with some amount of rigor and integrity the validity of those ideas uh, as we see them. Uh, I just wanted to comment quickly on something here that I was thinking about when as we were discussing all this, and that is um, I got my college education about 25 years ago, and um, there, there was so so little unless you made a point of pursuing it uh instruction on the ideas and values of metaphysics uh unless you made a point of taking classes in the philosophy department of of your university uh which i tried to do and um it's funny because one of the best professors i had at the time uh was a big david hume and emmanuel kant guy and um but in addition to the writings on, on those philosophers, he had written a book on logic. And uh, he wrote a book called The Art of Deception, which was all about logical fallacies. So it, it seemed very important for him at the time to distill uh, what were thinking errors to his students so that they could, they could hold up truth as, a, as an ultimate value so that they could look at their own thinking and, and see through, the, um, through the, the kind of, uh, you know, I think one of the logical fallacies was appeal to emotion uh, that, that he was able to, to impart on his students. He was able to point out how it is that, that, that we think in certain ways and make arguments that are, um, that are, motivated, that are motivated reasoning, that have nothing to do with trying to get at the truth of the matter, but rather were you know, winning the argument or having power over your opponent. So these were values that um, I was very fortunate enough to, to experience in a classroom setting. And, um, and it seems to me that you know, in, in, in our time and place, uh, I should have been taught these ideas when I was in grade school. 
not as an elective course in, in university that I just happened to come upon uh, because I needed to, to fill in a, a, you know, a liberal arts or, or philosophy elective uh, on, on, my, uh, on, my, on my credit sheet. Um, so th there, you know, th this discussion speaks to how it is that in this time and age we've been, all of these ideas have been, have been shunted aside as, as this kind of more eccentric uh, uh, pursuit instead of what might be the very basis of of how we should approach thinking politically, um, how we, how we should be approaching uh, the ideas that are presented to us in science and in in uh, in culture, and uh, we've been um, you know we've been deprived. I think that there's definitely a natural uh, there's just a natural component to this spread of irrationalism that involves being lazy. I mean, you know, if you think about how much work, you know, that Collingwood describes the, you know, having the ideal of truth, you know, rigorous, systematic, ordered behavior, both theoretical and practical, and the amount and how you, you place that as your highest value and the kind of strain that that puts on a human being, any, anybody, you know, it's, it's not, um, it's not for the, the faint of heart and it's not for people who are character disturbed either. So when you think about it, there's always going to be a natural tendency to, to drive away from that by, by people in society, just because that's a lot of work. I don't want to have to do all that work. Thinking is not easy. You know, it, it turns out that thinking involves a lot of looking at the way you think and being like, well, that's wrong. Ah, well, shoot, I'm wrong. You know, nobody likes to feel wrong. You know, there's a lot of having to sacrifice, you know, aspects of yourself that are unpleasant. You know, facing up to the truth and living the truth as, you know, high ideals, they aren't easy. And so it makes sense that there would be plenty of people all over society who would join in on this epidemic just because it's easier to just live, you know, the nihilistic, hedonistic type of lifestyle rather than submit yourself to these, these goals that this other society of, you know, normal people are like, yes, the truth, you know, rigorous, systematic, ordered thinking. And then you're like, what, what, for what, why, you know, that's just a lot of hard work, a lot of hard work for nothing. Um, and, and it just, it reminds me of when I was a kid and I was, and I'd be really bored and I would spend uh, a lot of time just thinking because was, this was before cell phones, believe it or not. And so you had to, you know, if you were bored and you were living out in the middle of nowhere, you had to come up with a way to entertain yourself. And so what I would do is I would engage in what I, you know, just basically thinking circles where I would just, I would ask myself, what is, uh, what does it mean to be good? And so then I would be like, well, you know, good. Well, I guess I have to define good. And I'm like, well, I don't know how to define good without thinking of examples. So then I think of all the examples that I could think of, of what it meant to be, a, to be good. So a good person, you know, somebody who takes care of their neighbors, whatever, takes care of, you know, somebody who, like, if I'm good, then I'm taking care of my dog. So, okay, so being good means, you know, taking care of other people. So, so then I would do that with just about everything that I could think of. And I would do it over and over again, just just for the fun of of thinking, 
And just because it was, sometimes I'd find, oh, I was wrong about that, or I think differently about that now. But that's the thing that you will never learn in school, is the joy of thinking and discovering things and just playing with ideas. Because it's not, like you said, Alam, that isn't something that, I guess, is encouraged in our society for one for one reason or another. And that actually really shocked me when I was going through school and through college. I was like, why is this not part of our you know, curriculum? So then I would think about that. And I, and I used the same kind of thinking, you know, thinking pattern. And when I went to college, I got a book called Socratic Logic. And, and I was looking through it and I found that there was a whole chapter devoted to this basic thought loop and it was the Socratic method. And so here I am as a kid, just daydreaming, just thinking and stumbling across this concrete, you know, thought form, I guess, for lack of a better word, a way of thinking that had been used, you know, for, for eons. And there's, you know, tons of different uh, things like that, you know, mnemonic devices and all sorts of different ways of finding fallacies and, you know, and, um, and thinking logically. But there's an entire, what I'm, the point is, is that there's this entire world of thought that Collingwood is lamenting that we do not focus on and that we don't have a science dedicated to, a science that we elevate you know, in the same way that we elevate the physical sciences. And because of that, so many people walking around like irrational zombies because they can't think for themselves. They just are incapable of it. And even, you know, like I said, it's, you know, thinking is difficult and, you know, a life dedicated to truth is difficult, but people, so many people don't even have that, that, the chance to take that up because it just isn't really there. Mm-hmm. Now, like he, he laments the fact that psychology doesn't have that, or at least at the time hadn't matured to the point where they were able to really incorporate thinking into it. But you can still look and you, you get similar lessons, I think, from Jordan Peterson because he's a cognitive psychologist. So when he is tackling the human, the study of the human personality, he's tackling it in all of its dimensions. Or did I say cognitive? He's a clinical psychologist. Mm-hmm. He's, so he's tackling it in every dimension that you would meet in, in the clinic in a way that, can, that will most benefit you know, the average individual. And I just, you know, I can't tell you how liberating it was to, you know, to read that philosophy, the philosophy textbook and to see, you know, all of these, these things that, you know, it just seemed like just childhood, childhood daydreams, you know, that disappeared in the, the course of going to university and, you know, and, you know, just becoming an adult, but to find that, yes, at one time this was a science and that, you know, that it's still has uh it has its uses today and not just as a you know not just necessarily as just fun exercises whatever or brain exercises but as something as a way to explore you know the the real the foundations of of thought well i want to go back to something that elan had said uh in response to something Corey had said about uh you, you just both mentioned like the rule of law for instance it's just one of these kind of pillars of society and civilization that we have and 
um, and kind of the the reactions, like the negative reactions against, I guess, what you could call like the um, the the core tenets of like what we consider our civilization, and that just made me um, made me think of something that uh, Jordan Peterson has said very you know a lot of times about kind of the 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 archetype or the myth of uh, the father and um, like rescuing your father from the underworld, essentially, because we have all of these aspects of Western civilization that we, that hold up as kind of ideals and, and like valuable things about our civilization. Um, rule of law is just one, like equality before the law. Um, but we actually have people within our societies that are explicitly against those institutions that see, for example, the whole, the entire legal system as just a system of oppression and like patriarchy, for instance, and that's it. And so therefore it must be dismantled. It must be taken apart and something new, something entirely new must be put in its place and, and developed to, to, to totally replace that old system. So the, we, we have this, well, and the thing is they like, they've got their reasons, they may not be entirely right in their reasons, but you can look at any institution and find flaws within it. So you can look at the justice system and then find all kinds of flaws in the justice system. But there, I think there are distinctions to be made. It's like it's the whole throwing the baby out with the bathwater. It's like, is there something about the like the the legal like institution that is worth keeping? Is there an ideal in there that is worth striving towards? Um, I, I think yes. Now the so the critics will say no. But the, I think the reason they say no is that they look and they see the problems and then they extrapolate from those problems to basically, you know, guilt by association to tarnish the entire system. When we can all agree, I think, well, we can all agree that there will be problems. We can disagree over some of the particular instances of what may or may not be a problem. But we can all agree that there are problems. So what's the response to that? Is the response to tear down the whole system and throw it out? Or is the response to look at the ideals that uh, the ideals behind those institutions that kind of inspired those institutions and the reason that we hold them up as, as values to, to, to basically look at those things and then renew them. So that would be like, it's the same thing with this idea of truth as the ultimate value. Do we reject the idea of, of truth as the ultimate value or do we try to like find why that was a value in the first place and to renew it, to revive it, to give it new meaning? Um, um, well, uh, not necessarily new meaning, but um, more... More con- more contextually appropriate meaning, like in our day and age, to 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 put on um, like uh, culture specific clothing onto that, you know, to to make it relevant again to to people. Like I think that that's the well, that's the approach that Peterson's taking. I think it's the correct approach is to to look at the original values and try to try to renew them, try to bring them into a to to to, to show them in a new light, to to make them um, to make them attractive again because to a lot of people they aren't attractive and this is something that Lobachevsky also talks about in Ponderology about the the like the how old values decay and how they no longer become relevant especially in a society which has now reached a level of comfort you know uh, where where things are easy you start you stop um, you stop paying attention to those original values when things are easy because they're they lose their importance but then it's often the shock of uh, like a, a societal collapse of some sort or societal, a societal fracturing that, makes you, that forces you to 
um, to rediscover those old values. And it's always the old values. There may be there may be new you know bits and pieces that get added on because you're living in a new time. You're not living in the past. But those old values are what we turn to, um, like habitually, um, and I think just naturally, um, in order to find that strength to get through the um, like the, the 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 crisis that we're trying to overcome. So. <clears throat> So, um, well, yeah, I'd say that's all I wanted to say about that. Just the kind of the idea of rescuing the father from the underworld. You don't, you don't murder the father. You don't murder your like civil civilizational values that, uh, that, that kind of, well, that contribute who, who you are. You don't, you would be, you, you would essentially be killing yourself by doing so. <clears throat> and that's essentially what you're doing. But, um, but to instead like rediscover what made those like live options, you know, in the past, and what what continue to make them live options in the present. Um, one other thing on, uh, you know, we were talking about um, philosophies and like implicit, um, implicit philosophies and explicit philosophies and implicit like motivations. I think this is just a, a good time to to bring up, um, you know, James Carpenter's first sight ideas again, because that's what he's talking on a like an individual psychological level um, that. Um, so not just from the first sight perspective having to do with psi, but in the wider psychological like field, again, as the psychology of feeling, um, that we are ruled at any moment by tons of motivations, tons of goals and purposes that we're not aware of. And that's Carpenter's main point, and it's also the point of all the like clinical psychologists, is that we have reasons, but we're not aware of our reasons. We do things, and we're not aware of why we do them. Um, we, might think we, we might think that we know, and we might come up with reasons, but for the most part, those will be like confabulations and uh, rationalizations. We come up with reasons after the fact that may not have any um, relationship with why we're actually doing the thing. The, the, the motivations and the impulses and the, like the, and the reasons that we do things are implicit. So um, one of the things, one of the, the goals of like a psychologist is to try to, to some degree, to make those reasons explicit to try to understand our like our hidden motivations the things that we can't see about ourselves the things that we that we do that we can't really explain but which do have reasons and so looking taking like uh like zooming out from the, the like that individual psychological perspective to the wider kind of societal perspective um which also has its implications for the individuals within a society um you've got two options you can basically be controlled by a by a philosophy that you do not explicitly like understand, or you can develop uh, like your own philosophy by reference to chances are by reference to other philosophers because chances are you're not as smart as as them. Um, that's probably why you're not a philosopher. Um, and to to try to make as explicit as possible your own like the, the 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 deepest kind of presuppositions of 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 your life not not just in reference to like your your personal likes and dislikes and uh and like the the decisions you make but on the very deepest level um like your place within the entire like structure of the universe your place within like the totality of everything that there is what that means what it means for you to exist what it means for you to to come to know something and how you come to know something and how the, like the structure of, of reality um, allows for you to know something. And it's like, it's that like, at, at that level of abstraction, like the most general concepts and conditions of, of reality possible, 
like that's actually what then forms the the substrate for for all of your values and for the way that you actually live your life because if you if you really believed that there was no such thing as truth that there was no such thing as a, as actual values like if that w- if that were actually a possibility um well it's not a possibility but if it were you wouldn't do anything you wouldn't have any motivation to do anything because there would be no possibility for a motivation because there would be no possibility for value like that's the that's the logical endpoint of postmodernism is um is non-existence essentially like the only the only ontology the only reality um that could apply to the universe to cosmos to the cosmos um that would be um um that would be uh what's the word um that would fit with that uh that would fit with that philosophy would be non-existence because because you need a philosophy that that allows for things like motivations and for, and for for being itself Postmodernism doesn't allow for any of those things. It doesn't just because because there is no truth. There is no there is no like star in the sky to direct yourself towards. There is no goal to direct yourselves your, yourself to. There is no um, there is no standard for truth or beauty or justice or any of those things. Um, so all that you can have is non-existence. You can't even have like just a lazy person who doesn't get out of bed because like the very structure of reality wouldn't allow such a being to exist in the first place like it goes so deep that it 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 doesn't just have implications for um you know whether you want to do the right thing today it's for whether you will exist or not you know and if you exist that there are certain presuppositions certain like general abstractions about reality that must um like the, um like the they're inescapable in these inescapable inescapable presuppositions that allow for you to exist in the first place and so without thinking about those things um you can't possibly live a a life that is in pursuit of truth and you can't possibly live a coherent life where your actions are um are in line with your ideals with with your philosophy whether implicit or explicit so um well yeah i would just say since we're coming to the close of this show that um that's just a great takeaway for the whole purpose of mind matters and and why we're doing this program to begin with i think it's that there are all sorts of forces that are proponents of nihilistic postmodern relativistic thinking that seek to uh uh extract uh meaning and truth from from our lives and we we don't want to look at <clears throat> uh the various developments in society and and separate it so much that we can't see our own uh personal role in understanding our own individual parts uh and the and the and the, the roles that we play in helping to um form and shape what is our our civilization and it shouldn't be taken for granted um so hopefully you know th- these <clears throat> these ideas are empowering uh that there there is a a purpose and there is a uh, a reason to work some of these ideas out for our own um as individuals uh and to as much as possible anyway because we don't really know how how our thinking and how our actions based on truth can have a uh, a macro influence on the world at large or the cosmos as you said Harrison but um if if there is uh even a, uh, an ounce of of truth to the idea if there is even a a speck of um validity to the 
to the notion that um, that we have a uh, an, an influence on those around us, just based on our own self development, our own self work, our own uh, coming to terms with these ideas, then then why not? Uh, certainly, it's um, you know even if it's just a hypothetical, it it is still um, it is still something worth pursuing. So. Uh, on that note, unless you had anything else you'd like to add. No, we'll say goodbye. Yes. Have a good one, folks. Thanks for listening. All right. Take care, everyone.